Spoken biotech and medtech interviews with Encode Ideas. My name is Hogan Mullally. I'm a partner at Encode. I'm particularly excited about today's podcast because today I get to interview an investor, a friend of Encode Ideas, George Haywood. But really, George is closer to my partner, Ryan Aldridge. George and Ryan came to know each other through a mutual investment in AVI Biopharma, which became Sarepta. At one point, George was the largest individual investor in AVI, and obviously AVI Sarepta became an enormous success. George has also had notable successes in MarTech Biosciences, where he was the largest individual investor. MarTech was eventually a billion-dollar buyout. He was also known for large investments in XM Satellite Radio and Ameren. Before a successful career on Wall Street, George attended Harvard at the age of 16, where he studied biology. My partner, Ryan, describes George as a gunslinger, an investor who makes big, concentrated bets, often in small companies, looking for that, as he will describe, 50-bagger, but also willing to accept the potential for a zero. Today, George is going to be talking to us about two of his favorite little biotech companies, Synaptogenics and Petros. In many ways, when I interview investors, I should almost call the podcast Talking Up Your Book, because my vision is that I give the investor the floor. I let them elucidate their investment thesis. And at the end, I'll summarize my thoughts. It's very important to emphasize that this interview should not be considered investment advice. It's only for entertainment purposes. These investors are enthusiastic about their names. They are, you'll certainly hear that in in my interview with George. They believe in the, the big potential in these companies. But please, this is not investment advice. This is really for entertainment purposes. Do your due diligence before stepping into any of these names. I would also, from a disclosure perspective, highlight that Uh, We do not own any synaptogenics, but the partners at Encode do own some Petros. And with that, I'll now transition to my interview with George Haywood. I'd like to welcome George Haywood to the podcast. Uh, George, thanks for uh, agreeing to join us. My pleasure. So... I've already recorded a bit of a preamble where I talk about some of your earlier successes. I talk about AVI, Biopharma, I talk about MarTech. But, you know, for our audience's benefit, you know, I'd like to still hear from you about your investment style and in particular how you look at investing in, you know, biotech companies, your your sort of concentrated approach to to investing in these these smaller biotech companies. Can you share with our audience your strategy on these? Yeah. I love great risk reward. So if I find it somewhere, I'll actually probe the industry, the company very, very closely. And you don't only find great risk reward in the world of biotech, but it seems to be offered there a hell of a lot more often than anywhere else. That combined with the fact that I've always loved health stuff, I majored in biology in college, didn't go any further with it, but you know, I've always followed health issues and, um, and frankly, 
there's a little bit of um, save the humanity instinct inside, i.e., you like to find a company that seems like it's got the potential to do a lot of good for certain patient population, for the world in general, whatever. That gives you an, a little extra added oomph behind your desire to see the company succeed, to sometimes help it raise money, to talk to other investors about, hey, look at this company, look at the great things it's got the potential to do, <clears throat> and um, you can be involved. You know, <laughs> the uh, CEO of MarTech back in the day, one of my probably most proud investments, um, the company that had an additive to baby formula that made the baby formula more like human breast milk, he used to have a, um, a motto, do well by doing good. And, um, you know, you could make a lot of money if you're right on these things and feel good about it. So I, I tend to find that sort of thing in small cap companies, often companies that are, in fact, almost always way off the radar screen, not efficiently followed, not understood, and therefore dramatically undervalued, or at least I think they're dramatically undervalued. And if they go from being dramatically undervalued to being where I think they should be, they can be five baggers or they can be 50 baggers if, if the drug succeeds and all that. I mean, AVI, which became Sarepta, as you know, that, that was a 50 bagger from low to high. Uh, unfortunately, I was not riding the entire way, but, you know, selling too early happens quite a bit. But, uh, you know, I did okay. Yeah, from the sounds of it, you did. And I completely agree with you. The, the the feeling of investing in something that could do, you know, good for humankind is always nice on top of, you know, making money through through those investments. You know, so two of the names, you know, we're going to discuss today, Synaptogenics and Petros, both have connections back to Neurotrope. So I'm curious, you know, given that these are the two names that, you know, you've been a you know vocal supporter of, you know, does this trace back to an earlier investment for you in Neurotrope? Yeah. I mean, I first became interested in Neurotrope because a friend of mine who runs a hedge fund said, hey, you should look at this company, Neurotrope. They have a potential treatment for Alzheimer's. This thing works. The stock will be a huge multiple where it is now. And you should take a look at it. So that started me on a journey of research because I like to dig very closely. Company had a very small market cap at the time. The trial that was then ongoing failed, at least on the top line, and the stock got killed. Stock eventually traded down to, um, where was it, half of cash per share, right? So I became intrigued and, you know, I had sold some stock when it crashed and burned. And the results were uh, a top-line failure, although there were nuggets of success even within that data. But markets don't care about things like that. They just run for the hills. And so the stock was literally trading at about 70 cents. And this is there's been some split adjustment that's necessary. But at the time, the stock was at 70 cents, and they had about a buck 40 per share in cash because they had raised money earlier. So I I looked at the thing and said, this technology didn't succeed on the top line, but there were some pre-specified subgroups on which it seemed to have efficacy. So, you know, oftentimes biotech companies find a, uh, a reason to continue to exist inside the data. And 
long story short, that's what this company eventually did after a few months of looking at the data. They said, here, you know, we're going to proceed with this group based on our learnings from the first quote-unquote failed trial. And we're going to proceed with this group, and we we believe we'll succeed. Okay, so that's that was my start with this company, Neurotrope. Then uh, Neurotrope proceeded to do it another trial, and that one failed on the top line too. But again, good scientists that I know said an experiment never fails. You learn something from it, and you may learn that your drug doesn't work. Or you may learn that you should have done it a different way, and that if you do it a different way, the data and the probability say that it might very well work if you do it the correct way. So I say failed, quote unquote. Anyway, the second trial you know, failed, quote unquote. Stock went down again. The company had a lot of cash. And so what it did was um, somewhere in that journey, they decided to. Um, merge with another company, which uh, eventually was called Petros. And they did a sort of a complex spinoff where the successor company, Synaptogenics, had all the technology that used to belong to Neurotrope. And the other company, which is called Petros, became a men's health-focused company. And that company took some of the cash that previous neurotrope had and used neurotrope in this sort of complex transaction as a way of going public because the company that is now called Petros was a portfolio asset of a um, private equity company called Juggernaut Capital. So that's kind of the genesis of the two companies. I think it doesn't matter much now because the two companies are separate. You can analyze them, you know, completely separately. They're Again, totally different companies, and you can analyze each one on its own merits. No, I think that's absolutely true, and I think we'll you know kind of drill into each one of them now, sort of individually. And I think you highlighted something which I really noticed about Neurotrope, sort of following it from the sidelines, was that although Neurotrope as an investment didn't play out as expected, it did have its moments though as a trade. and my recollection was uh, heading into the first phase two readout, the stock certainly had a healthy run into data. And I don't recall if it had quite as healthy a run into their second phase two. But that then, if we circle that, that stock behavior back to synaptogenics, do you see synaptogenics having sort of more trade attributes? Again, where it, you know, it could, it's obviously very affordable here. Um, it's in a fantastic area uh, of Alzheimer's disease where you've got lots of investor eyes and lots of human interest attached to it. And it's got a phase two placebo controlled readout in, you know, within the, let's call it within the year. Uh, do you see it more as a as a trade or do you feel emboldened enough with the technology that perhaps this is an investment that you say, you know, I'm going to hold my position through data because I believe that, you know, 50 bagger potential you referred to before with, with AVI biopharmacerepta is, is, is possible here? I would say both. I would say the possibility of using it as a trading vehicle is extraordinarily attractive, meaning that I think that you are extraordinarily likely to make 
a very good chunk of money just as a trading vehicle, meaning before they eventually turn over the card, the card being the results of their Alzheimer's trial, which is about 80%, 85% recruited, and which we'll read out within probably about 10 months. I think that between now and the time they turn the card over and you find out whether the drug works or not, I think the stock will be a multiple of where it is now simply because it's off the radar screen, it's not understood, and it's a stock that is wildly out of line in terms of its market cap compared to other companies that I think have inferior technology, technology that is less likely to read out uh, favorably. Now, having said that, I also want to hold a portion for the turning over of the card. I think that if you look at the data, it's not at all unlikely that this thing could prove out. And if it proves out, again, I think the market cap could be 40 times higher than it is now. The reason I say that is the market cap now, fully diluted, they got about 12 million shares because they have some warrants out there. So if you want to throw a market cap on it now, including the full, fully diluted count, it's about 100 million, 120 million right now. Well, what would this asset be worth if the trial proves out the way the company hopes it will and the way evidence suggests it might? I think that a $5 billion market cap or $6 billion market cap is not impossible. In other words, what would a big pharma, I look at it this way, what would a big pharma company pay for this drug if it proved out, as this company hopes it will, in this clinical trial? I think $6 billion is a reasonable figure simply because Alzheimer's, a, a successful Alzheimer's drug would probably be the biggest drug in the world. It would be 15 to $20 billion a year. The numbers are simple, you know, 6 million people in the U.S. alone have Alzheimer's. Roughly similar number are, um, have mild cognitive impairment, which is sort of pre-Alzheimer's. That's just in the U.S. You know, there is a big world out there, but let's just look at the U.S. What would a drug like this, what could you charge patient per year for a drug like this. I think that Aduhelm, that drug that uh, Biogen had, they were trying to sell that at 50,000 bucks, despite the fact that the safety was extremely problematic and that the evidence that it worked was extremely thin. So their pricing department thought they could get away with charging $50,000 per patient per year. So how much would you charge for a drug like the one that the, the one that Synaptogenics has the right to, what would you charge for a drug that is safe? Because this drug has been tried. This drug actually has an interesting history. It was tried uh, for cancer indications, uh, NIH-supported trials and things like that. So it's been tried in like a 1,000 patients over uh, various trials. And so the safety profile is pristine. It's very well established in the literature. And um, so a drug that's safe, and that doesn't just slow the decline, it actually, hopefully, will cause an improvement because it works by an entirely different mechanism than the, the mechanisms by which all these other drugs have been tried. 
this whole beta amyloid tau protein tangle thesis that's controlled the world for 25 years and led to literally about 150 or 200 unsuccessful trials in a row. The most successful, which may have been Aduhelm, and again, we know how that really wasn't a very successful uh, try, uh, drug, and it should not, you know, it should never have been approved by the FDA according to massive consensus verging on unanimity in the medical field. So a drug that actually did what this drug looks like it might do, I think that big pharma companies would be salivating at the prospect of controlling that drug for the mere cost of $6 billion. And I think that's interesting because synaptogenics is in such a exciting space where investors have bid up a lot of names uh, off of you know, sometimes even questionable data. I mean, I'm thinking of, uh, you know, the cassava situation right now, which is obviously very topical uh, with their Western blot, you know, controversy and most of their data being uncontrolled data. When it comes to synaptogenics, I think that some of the uh, neurotrope history from the two phase two studies has perhaps dogged them as being, uh, you know, a history of data mining. You know, how would you address that objection that some investors may may have when it comes to synaptogenics? Well, I don't think they did data mining. I, mean, I think they did stuff that's uh, part of the scientific process. They have had two quote-unquote failed trials, but they had pre-specified subgroups that were logically constituted. And in the trials, the the drug worked on the subgroups with you know, high statistical significance. So I think that, you know, one of the reasons why the stock is as low as it is, is that people sort of look at the surface and don't look at the details underneath. And I think that if they do examine the details closely and look at some other surrounding circumstances that are highly indicative, I think, then they will conclude that it's not a question of data mining, that it is a question of learning by different iterations how to design the next trial and hopefully the next trial has been designed in a way that will achieve statistical significance and success so speaking of the next trial you know what key learnings did they take away from their previous clinical experience that they're applying in this trial uh, i believe they've got a you know another placebo controlled trial that's ongoing with data relatively imminently let's say in the next 12 months what have they learned from their previous studies that they're applying to this study that should give investors a you know added bit of confidence in the probability of success well in the first trial they learned that uh, the patient population should be off of memantine memantine is a drug that's um, uh, commonly prescribed for Alzheimer's patients, it doesn't alleviate the, it, it doesn't affect the course of the disease, but it does alleviate some of the symptoms. So it's a pretty widely prescribed drug because there's pretty much nothing else out there. But the mechanism of action of memantine interferes with the mechanism of action of brastatin, which is a um, synaptogenic drug. So they pre-specified a group uh, in the trial and said these are the this group here since we're not on MNT. And on that group, they had a high statistical significance. Okay, so in the next trial, the second trial, which quote unquote failed, they had people who were not on memantine, 
But unfortunately, the distribution between the two arms, the distribution of severely affected patients was very skewed. When they went back and did a close analysis of the data, they found that to be the case. So if you do a statistical analysis that corrects for that imbalance and you apply it to patients who were, again, in a pre-specified group, the less severely affected, the, the moderately affected Alzheimer's patients, then you also saw high statistical significance in that group. And what they did overall and what they talked about in the abstract that they put out at the AAIC conference in late July, they said, we have 95 patients between these two trials. Uh, out of the 250 patients that were in those two trials, we have 95 patients who exactly fit the parameters that we use to recruit in this trial, the trial that's ongoing now that will read out, as you said, in the next 12 months or so. And the statistical significance on that group, those 95 patients, was 0 0.001, highly statistically significant. Now, clearly, the market must feel that that's a BS number, because if you believe that the result that you achieved on those 95 patients has any reasonable chance of being reproduced, the market cap of this company would be literally $2 billion, not $120 million or so. So clearly, people feel there is data mining, and I think they're simply incorrect in that. And I think the interesting thing, the company has hinted broadly, and the uh, chief scientist, Dan Alcon, said in the Benzinga conference uh, a little over a month ago, he said, I expect to have a, a peer-reviewed journal article come out that gives great specificity and uh, scrutiny to the data analysis that we did. And if such an article comes out in a peer-reviewed journal, I would assume that people would have to rethink their suspicion that there's data mining and skullduggery and some trickery going on with the data. So I hope that the company can come out with the sort of paper that they've hinted at. The guy who is the chief scientist there is eminent in the world of Alzheimer's. He's got 400 uh, peer-reviewed journal articles to his credit over his long career. So this is uh, a very reputable guy who I think understands the process of peer review and publication. So when he says he hopes and expects and all this, I, I hope he's right. Is there anything else you want to cover off on synaptogenics before we transition to Petros? Well, there is one aspect to the synaptogenic story that I think is important, and we haven't discussed it. They're using that drug, bristatin, in a couple of other indications. And the important part to understand is that there are other neurological diseases that have the same basic source as Alzheimer's. They're, they are diseases of neurological deterioration, so a synaptic deterioration to be specific, where the nerve synapses are going downhill or deteriorated. And perhaps if you could do something therapeutic toward the synapses, you would achieve some good results. So the important thing is, <laughs> this is a company where, in general, the investor community isn't paying attention. 
And if they are paying attention, they don't really attribute much chance of success. But here are two things that indicate that some very, very smart medical people think that the chances of success are not remote. First, in um, Fragile X syndrome, Fragile X is a, uh, I guess it's an orphan disease, but it's not a tiny, tiny orphan disease. It's pretty large orphan disease. And Fragile X syndrome uh, is the main genetic underlying cause of autism, which is obviously a big problem. There are several papers on um, Bristatin as applied to uh, preclinical models of autism that are extremely promising. And when I say that there are experts who are basically indicating their belief that Bristatin might work, uh, the company three months ago, Synaptogenics announced a collaboration with the uh, Nemours DuPont um, Hospital, a uh, big hospital. They have a real specialty in um, treating Fragile X uh, kids, mostly kids who have this. And um, they have a collaboration that um, has been announced, or memorandum of understanding. And I think that in the next couple of months or so, you'll hear more about, you know, approaching the trial or filing of INDs or things like that as this proceeds. But some of the country's top experts in Fragile X think enough of this drug, Bristatin, and its potential for healing or, you know, alleviating synaptic problems. They think enough of it to proceed with a trial, a human clinical trial at their hospital, uh, which is one of the top centers in the country for Fragile X. If they thought that Bristatin had no chance of working, trust me, they wouldn't be using this drug in a clinical trial that's got their their name on it. So that's one vote of confidence. Another is um, company, Dan Alcon, the chief scientist, again, has alluded to the strong likelihood that they'll have a collaborator in the field of multiple sclerosis. Now, there is a paper out there, which is publicly available, that talks about the viability of using Bristatin to address multiple sclerosis. Uh, it's a paper that's co-authored by six top guys from Johns Hopkins, none of whom have anything to do with synaptogenesis. So, you know, that's, you know, good, a good neutral medical source, top-notch people. And I'll just read, I have this thing in front of me, I'll just read two sentences that talk about this and keep in mind that the company has hinted broadly that they expect to be announcing a collaboration with a top medical center, maybe Johns Hopkins, who knows, to do work on multiple sclerosis. Here's, I'm reading from this paper. It says, and this is a preclinical work done on a mouse model, um, but what it says here, these findings suggest the potential for Bryo-1, that's Bryostatin, as a therapeutic agent in multiple sclerosis, particularly given its established clinical safety. Furthermore, the benefit of Bryo-1, even in late treatment of um, this mouse model of, you know, of multiple sclerosis, combined with its targeting of innate myeloid cells, suggests therapeutic potential in progressive forms of MS. So right here in this paper, done by some Todd Motch people, they're saying, hey, look, this looks really promising. Somebody should proceed with a clinical trial. Okay, and again, the company has hinted broadly that they're going to be proceeding with a clinical trial. So these two things, fragile X and multiple sclerosis, just basically separate shots on goal. You got Alzheimer's, the big shot on goal. But trust me, if you have 
any positive indications in even small stage open label clinical trials, which I think is the type of trial that the company would be doing with either of these medical institutions. If you have any kind of success there, it could be an enormous bonanza to the stock because either one of those, fragile X or multiple sclerosis on its own, forget about Alzheimer's, on its own would be a multi-billion dollar drug. I think I understand, you know, your rationale around the, the the three different indications, and I think you've you sort of laid out the opportunity both from a trading perspective and also why there could be a outsized return if synaptogenics were to be successful in in you know any of these three programs. But obviously, Alzheimer's being the most robust as far as where they are with their current R and D uh, plans. So maybe maybe let's turn to the the next name that we are going to cover off today which um, is, is Petros. And you know, maybe for our audience's benefit, I'll just highlight that you've just recently filed a, a 13G here, disclosing over a, a million shares of ownership of Petros. So, um, but I think this is a name that's probably a lot less well-known relative to, to synaptogenics, uh, given that it's only recently public and, and still fairly thinly traded. Although I suppose we did kind of also miss our window. Um, the stock did get a bit of a, a charge earlier this week with a, an announcement about Stendra's um, uh, you know, percentage increase of, of sales through uh, For Him's uh, website. But you know, let's talk about Stendra, the, the main asset that is inside uh, Petros. When you look at Stendra, are you most interested in it from a quarter over quarter growth perspective, sort of the, the you know the, the current growth trajectory, or are you more looking at it from a sort of regulatory play with the potential of this going OTC? Well, frankly, both, but let me just explain why. I don't know if it was audible, but I chuckled when you said thinly traded because you're right. It was thinly traded. I actually pulled up the chart here. So before they made the announcement about four about four hymns platform and their great success there, the stock traded the previous three days sixty two thousand shares, sixty five thousand shares, and then eighty one thousand, and then two hundred and seventy nine million shares. <laughs> it's like this market. If you got a good story, oh my God, 81,000, I mean, uh, I've never seen anything like this market. Anyway, 81,000 shares to 279,941,000 to be exact. So when you have an interesting story, people do react. It's very interesting. Anyway, so to your question, which is a great question, and again, my fence-straddling answer was both. So... I think that the opportunity for a big win on this stock absolutely is there on both bases. Number one, organic growth, right? With any, without any regulatory actions um, that would be huge catalysts, right? But with, without any of that, I think that the thesis is very simple. This drug, this is an ED drug, erectile dysfunction drug. It's one of the four major erectile dysfunction drugs. It, it, they're PDE5 inhibitors. This drug, I think, is the best of the, fu- of the four major drugs, Cialis, Levitra, Viagra, and Stendra, Stendra. 
I think it's the best of the drugs. It's the only one that was designed specifically to inhibit PDE5. So it actually has clinically shown more specificity for PDE5 and much less action on the other PDEs where you don't want it to have an effect. That has that manifests itself in other advantages to the drug. So when you have a drug that is in a class that's a multi-billion dollar class of drugs and it occupies 1% of the market and it's the best drug, I kind of look at that as having tremendous potential. You need the drug to be marketed correctly, which it has not been so far. The management of this drug was woefully inadequate before. It's changed. They now have a guy in there, Fadi Bakhter, who's got great history and who I think is a very competent uh, guy who's got track record of having promoted uh, drugs before very successfully. And uh, I just believe that if you have 1% of the market, you got a lot of upside. If you go all the way to 6%, 6% is probably a pretty low figure for what potential the best drug in the market might have. But if you just get the 6%, well, you can do the math. Revenues would be six times higher than they are now. And this is a very high margin. Uh, gross margins are 80%. So I think the thing has tremendous potential on that front alone, just organic growth in the ED market. Let's let's talk about why you think it's the best in class. So you you mentioned that it's more specific for PDE five, but there's also you know other advantages I suppose that derive from that as far as onset of action and potentially some side effect benefits as it pertains to nitrates, which lends itself to the conversation around OTC. Right. Well, let's just look first at. Um you know, the differentiation on time to action. Okay, so their label is different from the label on any other ED drug. Their label specifically says you can take this as little as 15 minutes before sexual activity and get the result that you want. They're the only one of the four where it says 15 minutes. The other ones say, I think it's either 30, 45, or 60 minutes beforehand. Now, given the circumstances in which people use ED drugs, I think it would be a major, it is a major marketing advantage to be able to say 15 minutes beforehand, you can take it. And you don't have to take it and then wait around 45 minutes and maybe mood changes or whatever. So in order to have that label, the FDA has to look closely at the data and approve the label, which of course they did. So that label change, that, that label difference in and of itself shows you the superior chemistry, at least. The, the, this is one of the fruits of having the greater specificity. You mentioned another one, which is potential interaction with nitrates. There is a paper, I don't have it in front of me right now, but there's work that was done <clears throat> that showed that the ability to take this ED drug and not have it interact with nitrates is better than the other drugs because it metabolizes quicker. Uh, it reaches peak blood level and falls off more quickly. 
And so of all the ED drugs, again, the label, if you read all the details of the label, this is the only one where they actually state a time limit within which you could use nitrates. And it specifies 12 hours. Now, it says under urgent circumstances, right? So they're not saying, hey, go back to using your normal nitrates after 12 hours. But there's work to be done on that front, too, in terms of the dosage and the, the window uh, in which it does not interact in a harmful way with nitrates. So you're right. The mechanism of action of this drug or the, the, the way in which it, it works and the speed with which it works gives it a real advantage in terms of the possibility of getting a label that um, would talk about that uh, advantage with nitrates. And then on the biggest picture of all, in terms of being able to take the drug over the counter, you know, that lower interaction with nitrates uh, and again, there's some work that's been done that, that sort of points to that. That would be a real big advantage in getting, you know, the holy grail here, the holy grail being, um, you know, taking this over the counter. And the people, the people involved in this actually believe that um, they have a pretty good chance of getting it over the counter. And the company that uh, owns 51 or, uh, yeah, 51% of this, um, Juggernaut, a private equity uh, company has a lot of experience bringing products over the counter. In fact, they brought the Plan B contraceptive drug over the counter, and it's the lar- single largest selling SKU in the over the counter market. So they are very optimistic about their ability to take it over the counter, which would be a gigantic bonanza because anyone who follows the ED drug market knows that if you can get if you can do what no drug company has been able to do so far, which is to get their ED drug approved for OTC, it would be a gigantic bonanza. The stock would probably be 10 times is. Uh, yeah. And I think, you know, the, you know, one of the, I think, you know, the data suggests that the majority of men don't seek, don't seek help for erectile dysfunction. The direct to consumer push for, you know, from for hims and others has really improved adoption because there's a little bit more of uh, privacy as far as going through that process. But OTC is the holy grail, obviously, as far as, you know, a man being able to discreetly access the PDE5 drug. I know in the UK, I believe Viagra is over the counter. I'm not sure about the other products. So this isn't, this isn't some, some, you know, dream that, that is unattainable. Obviously the UK is different than, than, than the FDA, but you know, I think this is really, you know, one of the things that's really exciting about the Petros opportunity is that OTC path. I think the only thing I always sort of struggle with is is finding, trying to understand the pathway properly. You know, the company has disclosed that they've run a label comprehension study, a successful pilot label comprehension study earlier this year, and they are currently running a pivotal study. And I believe they met with FDA in September but there's still sort of a, a certain amount of unknowns as to how long this process takes and you know what the next steps are. Do you find that, or is that something that's not really doesn't really weigh on you as a as a Petros investor? Well, no, I think you you describe the situation accurately. 
the fact that the OTC pathway is not entirely clear and is probably rather prolonged, I don't think they're going to get anything OTC for a couple of years, right? So that's why I consider it very fortunate that I don't need to see OTC in order to be very enthusiastic about this company and the stock. Again, the possibility of organic growth, which has nothing to do with any regulatory changes, just sell more of the drug because it's a better drug and you've only got 1% of the market now, that is, I can rest my hat on that right there. But the other represents a quantum leap up, but that's further down the road. I think that's that's absolutely correct. So maybe maybe we'll look at the OTC path as sort of optionality within the name and then sort of taking that to the adding more optionality is is their R&D program which obviously they don't get a lot of attention on right now but something that's intriguing because you mentioned Fadi and and his history you know he has a history with oxilium and Peroni's disease and there's obviously a Peroni's angle pardon the pun uh, on uh, for for Petros <laughs> Hogan, you should be drawn and quartered and flogged for using that yeah, I, angle. But anyway, yeah. I digress. <laughs> so, George, give, give us your thoughts on Peroni and and uh, how it how it plays into the uh, Petro story. It's a free option that could be of extraordinary value. So they have a uh, Peroni's disease treatment that looks like it would be superior to the current state of the art. And you mentioned Fadi's background. Well, interestingly enough, he was on the team that built up uh, Zyaflex, which is the only drug right now that exists to, to treat Peroni's disease. Zyaflex, unfortunately, uh, well, first of all, Zyaflex is about $175 million a year drug. So it's a big drug because it's a big market. But Zyflex has a couple of disadvantages. Number one, it costs, I think, over $20,000 for a course of treatment. And number two, maybe more discouraging, is the treatment consists of as many as eight needle sticks in the affected part of your body, if you know what I mean, just where you don't want needles being stuck. And yet it's a $175 million a year drug. The drug that Petros has, a, has the rights to is a topical application, probably wouldn't cost more than a couple thousand dollars, and at least in the admittedly small trial, the results in terms of reduction of curvature were superior, or at least competitive, with Zyaflex. So it looks like a big leap forward, but there's still, well, probably a year and a half, couple years of clinical work to be done, but as they start to progress forward on that, I think people could get very excited about the potential for that drug uh, itself. You know, a totally, <clears throat> totally aside from um, Dendra, the ED drug. Right. I mean, I guess that's the sort of almost this two-pronged op- optionality, right? You have Stendra as your, you know, your your current FDA-approved asset, and then you've got, you know, growing FDA-approved asset, and then you have the uh, optionality of OTC and optionality of Peronis, which, you know, is a nice, uh, a nice setup. I mean, you know, um, 
you know, you talk about the 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 amount of shares that traded recently off of this uh, for him's announcement. I mean, this thing doesn't have a lot of shares outstanding. I don't have the number in front of me. Maybe you know it off the top of your head, but I mean, it's it's a pretty low flow name. And you also mentioned that Juggernaut has substantial insider ownership, and you've got a 13G on this one, so it's got to be a relatively low float name. Uh, there's about 13 million shares outstanding and another 3 million warrants. Right. So not a lot of, not a lot of stock out there. So when you talk about 200 no, million plus shares trading, oh my God, that's a, that's like well, a that's 25 X. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's insanity. I can't, you know, I, I don't spend too much time thinking about, you know, people who, I don't know, they buy it at 11 o'clock and sell it at 1101 and clip 10 cents. Uh, I can't, I have no earthly <laughs> way to figure how that kind of volume comes up or why I don't focus on that. I focus on what I think the fundamentals are. And in this case, the fundamentals are incredibly good because they have a drug. It sells. It's in the market. It's the best of the four ED drugs. And I, I think that the downside from here, it, it really is, doesn't really exist. I mean, I don't know. How, I don't know how, if you have a reasonably competent, management team. I don't know how you can avoid selling, getting more than 1% of the market, right? Now, the other, here's another possibility. Why, would, why wouldn't a deep-pocketed uh, competitor in this field, why wouldn't they want to acquire Stendron? The other drugs are off patent, right? They've all gone generic. This one is well, still on patent. It, why, why wouldn't somebody want to acquire this little company and plug this into their distribution channels and use their superior marketing muscle to make people aware of a drug that is superior. I mean, that seems to me to be a possibility that people aren't even looking at, but I don't know why that isn't real. Yeah. And I guess Foddy does have a, a decent history of uh, being part of uh, successful M&A. So uh, it wouldn't be his first uh, successful, successful exit either. So that's correct. Uh, you know, I think we've covered everything off, George. Is there anything uh, that you, you'd like to, to highlight on either of these names that we didn't uh, we didn't touch on? No, I think we've touched on the major points. I just just going back to Snap I believe that if this trial succeeded the way it might, the way the company thinks it would, I think that this asset would be worth five or six billion dollars because it would be a drug that that could easily be the most valuable drug in the world. And, you know, obviously I'm not the only person who thinks that Alzheimer's is a huge indication. Hell, Cassava had a $6 billion market cap at the peak about three or four months ago. Their stock was at 145. So it's not some fantasy to think that a drug that had, you know, really good phase two data could easily be worth $6 billion. Because frankly, I don't think Cassava had, well, without any question, Cassava did not have the sort of evidence that this company hopes that, that Synaptogenics hopes to have if this trial succeeds. And yet they had a $6 billion market cap. So it's not a fantasy to say that the market cap could be 50 times bigger than it is now within the next 10 or 11 months. I think when people start to look closely at that, they will start to wake up and assign a lot higher value to the stock. Yeah, there's no question investors have an infatuation with Alzheimer's disease. And there's no question that they are willing to look beyond 
asterisks that exist on companies and their data in this space. And frankly, FDA's decision to approve Biogen's Adelhelm with, you know, questionable efficacy, questionable safety, you know, throws an asterisk on the, the sort of top of the food chain here. So, you know, I, I do think that, you know, there's no question that investors are, are willing to make bets uh, on on Alzheimer's disease companies. So, um, you know, I'm I'm I think it's very topical that we're we're covering off synaptogenics right now, given that it's going to be sort of sort of 12 months out from from data. I think you've laid out a you know a a sound trade thesis. You've laid out uh, you know a, a a good argument for why some people want to consider it as a more of a hold through data. Um, so there's lots to think about here for sure. George, thanks so much. T- tons of great information. Really appreciate all your uh, insights and enthusiasm around these two names. We're obviously going to be watching them really closely and really appreciate your time. Hogan, uh, good discussion, good questions, and uh, pleasure talking to you. Thanks, George. A few final thoughts after my interview with George Haywood. You know, there's a lot to unpack on these two names, so I'll try to make this brief. I'll start with Petros, certainly the less controversial of the two names. I think our audience probably got a sense from my banter back and forth with George that this is a name that that I like. You know, I think Stendra has some unique attributes that differentiate it from the large incumbent PDE5s. Sales are trending in an encouraging direction. There appears to be you know, growing adoption through these increasingly important direct-to-consumer websites like For Hims. Obviously, the news from Petros last week on the increasing adoption through For Hims for Stendra supercharged the stock, if only for 24 or 48 hours. So I agree with George. Stendra, on its own, in its current format, makes Petros, I think, worth looking at. But I put a little more emphasis on the OTC pathway personally. I th- I think this is the big blue sky opportunity within Petros. And I think the company has been consciously underselling this to investors, this opportunity, the OTC opportunity, and likely for a couple of reasons. I think first and foremost, it's a tough pathway. Pfizer's tried, Lilly's tried, they've been unsuccessful. I think Stendra has the attributes which make it potentially the one ED drug that might be able to navigate through FDA to get OTC, but there's no question this is a challenging process that the others have tried and failed. The other reason I think that Petros has undersold it to investors is that the timing is still very opaque to them or ill-defined, let's say. I believe that you know it's not imminent But at this stage, I I think they aren't comfortable putting any overt timing out to investors until at least they get greater comfort from FDA as to the next steps. So I think it's hard to put a lot of value on it until we have uh, an understanding of the timing and the various milestones that need to be checked off along the pathway. I personally, as an investor, am very sort of excited and anxious to see that that level of granularity from the company. And I hope we see it soon. But for the time being, the company has been somewhat, I think, uh, underselling this opportunity. It's also, I think, encouraging that they have the juggernaut guys involved 
who have an experience have experience taking drugs OTC. Uh, George highlights that in our in our call. It also, frankly, makes the you know the overall cap structure on this company with Juggernaut and Haywood. You've got, you know, gosh, you've got a lot of insider ownership. You know, already not many shares outstanding. So it's it's got some interesting attributes as being a, a low float company. The one thing I would though highlight, and then I'll I'll jump to Synaptogenics, is my experience owning these micro cap specialty pharma companies is that they can kind of go. They kind of go quiet in between their quarterly results. No one gives them a lot of credit for their R&D at this stage. No one's giving them a lot of credit for the OTC potential at this stage. So really, it becomes a quarter over quarter story, and the stock either pops off of good sales numbers or you know drops off of poor sales numbers. And then investors tend to check out until the next quarterly results. So these names can kind of go sleepy between the quarter between quarterly results, and that can make it somewhat frustrating, I find, at times. Turning now to synaptogenics, when I first learned that this was one of the names that George wanted to talk about, it sort of took me down memory lane to 2016, 2017, when a friend of mine was helping to raise money for the then Neurotrope and first showed me the, the company. And although I never participated in that financing or nor did I ever buy shares of, of Neurotrope in the open market, I had a lot of friends who, who did the deal, bought shares in the open market as well. And by and large, they did really well with it. It, it traded really well heading into that first phase two data readout. And George talks about how, you know, he thinks synaptogenics could be a fantastic trade vehicle, maybe similar to what we saw with Neurotrope in 2017. And frankly, I, I, I tend to agree. I'm not much of a, of a trader myself, but I have to say, you know, the attributes are there for this to be a really interesting name in 2022. You know, I think investor interest in Alzheimer's Alzheimer's disease is at a, you know, all-time high bordering on investor infatuation, I would say. You've got, you know, a, a good cap structure and I think there's there's going to be a, a really interesting bull bear narrative that's going to play out here because God knows Neurotrope had its detractors and you're already seeing 15 to 20% of the shares outstanding are short. So, you know, it, you know, low flow, potentially growing short interest, you know, data catalyst, second half of 22, you know, it could be a, it could be a topical name. It could be fun to watch. So again, I'm not much of a trader myself, but I, I can certainly see the dynamics lining up for uh, an interesting 2022 for synaptogenics. However, as an investment, you know, there's no denying that Neurotrope didn't work out. And we, we talk about this with George. And frankly, you know, Alzheimer's disease is just extremely difficult. Mid to late stage studies have a very low probability of success. And yes, George correctly points out that the decades of failure in Alzheimer's disease have predominantly been in the area of beta amyloid hypothesis that most drugs have failed have fallen into that bucket and that's not where rheostatin synaptogenics are focused but we can't deny that the probability of success in these mid to late stage alzheimer's disease studies is is low but i again i i i have to agree with george in the fact that it, the probability of success may not be very high but the upside on success is Know, is enormous. It's a moonshot. And for the right investor with the right risk tolerance, and clearly George falls into that category, for the right investor who can tolerate that risk, 
this is one of those hero or zero stocks. And if you have the stomach for it, uh, it could, you know, if it hits, it could be, you know, it could be absolutely enormous. So, you know, I, I personally fall a little more into the trade camp, but for those with a stomach for high risk, high reward, you know, moonshot potential, I think Synaptogenics has uh, all those uh, all those attributes. I want to sincerely thank George for his willingness to sit down and and talk with me. My partner Ryan had it absolutely nailed. George is a gunslinger. He is a guy who makes big bets, swings for the fences. He's an absolute pleasure to speak with. These are the kind of people that make the stock market fun, in my opinion. And yes, there will be people who criticize his his thesis. There'll be people who sit on the other side of of his argument. But you know, he has the strength of conviction to stick his neck out and make these calls and get on you know get on our podcast and and lay out his investment thesis. And for that, I am terribly appreciative. Uh, I want to thank our audience for uh, tuning in and listening. Happy to hear any thoughts and comments and feedback. We're always open to new ideas. And I look forward to speaking to everybody again in a few weeks when we do our next interview. Thank you.